Our text for this morning is Psalm 6. Beloved congregation in our Lord Jesus Christ, sometimes we have to live with the consequences of our sins even after we have repented from them. For example, the alcoholic may have to live with the evil consequences to his health even after he has repented of his sin of drunkenness and no longer commits that sin. Or another example, the parents who fail to to nurture their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord may grieve for many years afterward about that sin that they committed in that connection. Now, God, what that means is that God sometimes continues his chastening of our sins even after we have repented of them. The fact that we have repented and asked his forgiveness does not necessarily mean that he immediately removes from us his chastening hand. We have two examples of that in the scriptures in David's own life. First of all, in 2 Samuel 12, where there's recorded for us the visit of Nathan the prophet to David after he had sinned with Bathsheba and committed murder of Uriah. When Nathan broke through at that point the hardness of David's heart and David had confessed his sin and received God's word of forgiveness directly spoken by the word of Nathan the prophet God still said to David after that fact that Bathsheba's child would die and that the sword would never depart from his house. Also in David's numbering of the people, when that numbering of the people was all finished, then David's heart smote him. His conscience began to trouble him and he confessed his sin to God. And God forgave his sin, of course. But God also came to him with the word through Gad the seer that he must choose between seven months of famine, three months of fleeing before his enemies, or three days of plying. In other words, the scriptures show to us that when we have repented of our sins, God does not always immediately remove his chastening hand. Now, part of that may simply be explained by the fact that when we repent of our sins, it's not possible immediately to remove all the consequences of sin. For example, you can't take away from the drunkard the ill effects on his health. We have to wait, in fact, for the resurrection of the body before all the effects of our sins have been removed. But also, it remains true that in spite of our repentance and in spite of his own forgiveness, God sometimes finds it necessary to continue to chasten us. Perhaps partly as an example to others, 
so that others may not fall in the sin which we have committed, but also for our own good, in order to teach us as clearly as possible by the firmness of his chastening against us that we must not fall into sin again. Let's consider this psalm under the theme, a prayer or praying for the removal of chastening. First of all, David's prayer, and secondly, David's confidence in God. David's prayer is found in verses 1 to 7 of the psalm, and David's confidence in God is expressed especially in verses 8 to to 10. Now in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter teaches us that there are two kinds of suffering, or that we can look at the whole subject of suffering from this particular perspective. 1 Peter 2 verses 19 and 20, for this is commendable, if because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is if, when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. So Peter says, on the one hand, there is a suffering for righteousness' sake. That is, there is a suffering which comes to us not only free of any guilt or cause in ourselves, but even that is brought on us because of our righteousness. But there is also a suffering for sin, what Peter calls being beaten for our faults. This suffering, of course, comes to us because of what we have done. And the Psalms speak of both of these kinds of suffering in different places. Just to give you an example of each, Psalm 69 talks about suffering for righteousness' sake. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I have come into deep waters where the floods overflow me. I am weary with my crying. My throat is dry. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. They are mighty who would destroy me, being my enemies wrongfully. Though I have stolen nothing, I still must restore it. That's suffering for righteousness' sake. Psalm 38, on the other hand, gives us an example of suffering for sin or being beaten for our faults. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your wrath, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. For your arrows pierce me deeply, and your hand presses me down. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your anger, nor any health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head. Like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. My wounds are foul and festering because of my foolishness. So you have these two kinds of suffering, suffering for righteousness' sake and suffering for sin. In both of those kinds of suffering, there is a fellowship of suffering between Christ 
and his people. When Christ entered into this world, he came under the wrath of God, being punished for our sins. He was touched with the feeling of our infirmities. The curse of God came upon him, and he suffered. He suffered for sin. He entered into, therefore, our suffering. That suffering which justly comes upon us because of what we have done against God. On the other hand, though, when we suffer for righteousness' sake, then the scriptures teach us that we become partaker of Christ's sufferings. That we join him in those sufferings which he endured unjustly at the hands of his enemies. We fill up the measure of his sufferings. Another scriptural expression. So in both of these kinds of suffering, there is a fellowship of suffering between Christ and his people. Christ entering into our suffering as under the curse and wrath of God, and we entering into Christ's suffering as suffering for righteousness' sake. Now, of course, when we look back at Psalm 6 again, we see immediately that this is a case of suffering for sin. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. And that suffering for sin, which David experienced in Psalm 6, is reflected vividly for us in the passage in Mark 14, where our Lord Jesus Christ suffered in the Garden of Gethsemane. They came to a place which was named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch. In Psalm 6, David says, My soul is exceedingly troubled. In Mark 14, our Lord Jesus Christ says, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. This then is a psalm not only of David in his suffering for sin, but also a psalm of our Lord Jesus Christ in his suffering under the wrath of God. He made the psalm his own. He made this psalm his own by taking upon himself the anger of God against our sins. Let's look then a little more closely at the details first of David's prayer in this psalm. He begins with a calling upon God to take away from him his rebuke and his chastening. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. David clearly had sinned, and the Lord was very angry with David because of the sin he had committed. David, in fact, uses a very strong word for God's anger in the second part of verse 1, which this translation renders hot displeasure, 
but which we may also render fury. The Lord was furious with David because of what David had done. David had experienced God's rebuke. He talks about that in the first line. Do not rebuke me in your anger. God had spoken to him. and We don't know exactly how. Perhaps God had sent a prophet to him, as he did in the case of his sin with Bathsheba. Perhaps a fellow saint had admonished him. Perhaps David had been listening to an exposition of the law from one of the priests, whose duty it was to expound the word of God for God's people. Perhaps even it came out of his private reading of the scriptures. Whatever the case, doesn't matter. But David had heard the word of God, and he had heard that word of God as a rebuke to him against that specific sin which he had been committing. He asked God to take that rebuke away. He also asks God to take away his chastening. In other words, God had not simply rebuked David, but had also brought into his life some kind of trouble. A trouble to remind David of his sin and to remind David that the consequence of sin, the ultimate consequence of sin, is death. This is the word of God in James chapter 1. You can turn there for a moment. James chapter 1, where James talks about sin and its consequences. Um, it's It's in verses 13 and following. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when sin has conceived, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. So God was showing David his anger and chastening him for his sin in order to correct him. That's the purpose of God's chastening. Even after David had repented of his sin. David therefore asks at this in this psalm that God remove his rebuke and remove his chastening. You should notice immediately that David does not ask for forgiveness. This is not a prayer for forgiveness. Probably because David had already received that forgiveness. It's a prayer rather for removal of God's chastening. Now in verses 2... And the first part of verse 4, David speaks of the effects of that chastening on him. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am weak. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are troubled. So there's two things that David talks about first. He talks about this weakness and about the need for healing. So he's, he's weak and he's sick. And both of those words can be understood in the context of the whole of Scripture as 
applying to a physical weakness and a physical illness. There are passages in Scripture where those words do actually describe physical conditions. But there are also passages in Scripture where both of those words refer not to physical sickness and physical weakness, but to spiritual trouble. The word languishing, in fact, is most often associated in the Old Testament, that's languishing or weak, is most often associated with the idea of mourning, and especially mourning for sin. And many times the scriptures talk about God healing his people from their sins. For example, he says in one of the prophets, I will heal their backsliding." And I think that David's trouble here in this psalm is not so much a physical trouble as it is spiritual trouble. Though we cannot be certain, nevertheless, I do think it's better probably to understand this weakness or this languishing and this sickness as a matter of David's spirit rather than of his body. God is angry with him, and because God is angry with him, he is oppressed, he is anxious, Because God is far from him, he is afraid of death, and he's not afraid of death simply as the end of life on earth, but afraid of death because it is the end, of course, of God's anger. If God does not remove his chastening hand at some point from David, David will be pressed down finally into death, into that death which is utter desolation, complete destruction, and loss of God's presence. But he also says, my bones are troubled. We could even almost translate that, my bones are dismayed. David's not talking then about a physical pain in his bones. He's talking about a fear and a trouble, a spiritual trouble that oppresses him so much that he feels it in his bones. He talks about that also in Psalm 32 and sheds considerably more light on that. 2, verses 3 and 4, When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. God's anger, God's chastening of him has penetrated so deeply into his being that he feels it in his bones. And then he adds to that, my soul is also very troubled. The same word he used with respect to his bones, but now adding that adverb very to it or exceedingly. My bones are dismayed. My soul is also greatly dismayed. God is angry with him. God is withdrawn from him. The presence of God is known no more. There's a sense of desperation in David's cry here that arises out of this spiritual oppression. Five times in these first four verses, of the psalm, David uses the name Lord. O Lord, do not rebuke me. Have mercy on me, O Lord. 
O Lord, heal me. But you, O Lord, how long? Return, O Lord. Deliver me. And we should notice also that cry in verse 3 that's cut off short before David even has a time to say what it is he means. But you, O Lord, how long? How long until what? How long until your hand is removed? How long until my bones are no longer dismayed? How long until this trouble is gone? How long until I am healed? How long until your favor returns? Is his promise clean, gone, forever? In that affliction, David makes five petitions. Be gracious is the first. Have mercy on me, O Lord. David acknowledges that his help must come from God. And that that help can come only in the way of God's mercy. David David cannot appeal to God on the basis of his righteousness. In this case, he must depend on God's mercy. And we'll come back to that in a moment. The second petition is heal me. Heal me from this spiritual sickness. The third petition is return. God has gone away. God is far from him. His back is towards David. David says to him, come back again. Let me know again your favor. Deliver me from this trouble and save me from your own chastening. Now in verses 4, And five, the last part of verse four and verse five, David gives us the grounds, or gives to God rather, the grounds for this prayer. The reasons why God should give to him an answer that is favorable. And we should note about those two reasons that are stated there, save me for your mercy's sake, For in death there is no remembrance of you in the grave who will give you thanks. That those reasons have nothing to do with David. David does not appeal to God then to remove his chastening hand because of righteousness in himself. He does not say to God, I have repented of my sins and therefore there is no need for you to chasten me anymore. He does not say to God, I have been punished enough He does not say, I have made whatever recompense is possible. He does not argue with God to take away his chastening then because of his own character or because of anything he has done. There is an implicit acknowledgement here in David's crying to God that God's chastening is just. That whatever God may do to him, however extreme his punishment may be, however far towards death his chastening hand may press him, God's chastening of him is righteous. He is absolutely in all of this dependent, not on any righteousness in himself, but on the full and unrestrained mercy of God. 
Save me for your mercy's sake. And we should notice that he does not say here, save me in your mercy, as we find in other psalms, or save me because of your mercy, but save me for your mercy's sake, for its sake. What that means is that David sees God as fundamentally a God of loving kindness, a God of mercy. God is not a God who delights in anger, who delights in rebuke, who delights in chastening, who delights in troubling his people for their sins. And David recognizes that even in the depth of his troubles here in this psalm. It's not that that God delights in, even though I feel his hand upon me now. It's not that he delights in. What he delights in is loving kindness. He desires to show loving kindness and mercy. And David is really saying to God here, save me so that you can delight again in showing that loving kindness which is fundamental to your character. You are a God who is good. You are a God who is benevolent. You are a God who is gracious and kind. Let the grace and loving kindness and goodness of your character be shown again, not only so that I can be happy, but so that you can satisfy the desires of your own heart. God delights in loving kindness and shows loving kindness in order that people may respond to him in praise. God had called David to be his own. God had shown David many loving kindnesses, many mercies in the past, in order that David might live to his praise and live to show forth his thankfulness to God throughout his life. But when God's hand presses down upon him in this way, David's thanks is silenced. And as God presses him further and further towards the grave, David becomes increasingly anxious, not only that he will never again know God's favor, but that he will never again be able to show that praise and thanks which God has called him to give. And so he's appealing here again to the character of God, to God's desire that his people show forth his praise in the world. And he says, if you continue to chasten me in this way, if you continue to press me down in this way, I will go to the grave. And who in the grave can give thanks to you? It's all in the character of God. David finds the reasons why God should give him a favorable answer to his petition. First, because God is God who is good and delights in loving kindness. Secondly, because God desires praise from David too. If David is pressed down finally to the grave and to death, that voice of praise will be silenced. In verses 6 and 7, David returns to his trouble. 
And he speaks in the first place of his sorrow. I am weary with my groaning. All night I make my bed swim. I drench my couch with my tears. That sorrow is obviously an overwhelming sorrow. He is weary from his sighing. He has wept so much for so many nights that his couch is drenched with his tears. And his eye has become old and is wasting away, blurred and dry, unable to see clearly because of the many tears he has shed. God is far from him. He knows nothing of God's loving kindness. And if people of God, the loving kindness of God is better than life, then the withdrawal of that loving kindness is worse than death. But David adds to his list of sorrows in verse 7 by referring to enemies. And our first response to that word enemies at the end of verse 7 is, where did they come from? There has been no hint throughout all of the first six verses of this psalm of anything to do with enemies. David has not once suggested that this psalm has anything to do with enemies. And suddenly here in verse 7, He brings enemies into the picture. Where did they come from? What's the point here? Well, the point is, people of God, that these enemies of David were the instruments of the Lord's chastening. It was through them that God chastened David for his sin. What that means, then, is that these enemies were not enemies of David because of his righteousness. And David could not here talk about enemies who are enemies without cause. These are enemies whom God has sent and by whom God is rebuking and chastening David for his sins. They are an expression of the anger of the Lord against David for his sins. They have brought trouble into his life, and that's suggested actually by the word David uses at the end of the first line of verse 7, my eye wastes away because of grief. The word doesn't really mean grief in the sense of sorrow, but grief more in the sense of we would use it when we say, he's given me so much grief. They brought trouble, provocation into his life. And they brought provocation and trouble into his life because they have been sent by God to trouble him. There are many lessons, people of God, that we could derive from these first seven verses of the psalm, but let's call attention to just three. First, God's chastisements may take many, many different forms. Rebuke, trouble from enemies, sickness, and death even. Paul talks to the Corinthians about their abuse of the Lord's Supper and says to them in connection with that, many of you are sick and some of you have died because of that sin. Maybe sickness and death, maybe trouble in relationships, it may be physical trouble of one sort or another. Things that are even the direct consequences of our sins must be seen as the chastening hand of God 
For example, the drunkard's health problems are not just consequences of his drinking, but are the chastening hand of God upon him. God's chastening may take many different forms, but always, in whatever form that chastening comes to us, it's designed to bring trouble into our lives. God sends trouble when we have sinned, and he sends trouble because in that way, he teaches us that if we continue in that way of sin, we're going to bring upon ourselves further trouble, and ultimately, we're going to bring upon ourselves death. Sin leads to death. And God lets us taste the consequences of our sins in order to stop us in our tracks, in order to bring us back from that way of sin. We need to feel trouble in order to be brought back from our sin. Second thing that we may learn from this, people of God, is that we need to be more deeply impressed with the wickedness of our sins. I say that because I think it's very difficult for us to identify with David in this psalm. Very difficult for us to remember, perhaps even, when last we would have felt so grieved and so troubled by the chastening hand of God that we would cry, O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Now, why is it? if we have trouble identifying with David in this case, why is it that we have that trouble? Well, one possibility is that we are such obedient children that we do not need God's chastening. Another possibility, people of God, and that's a horrifying possibility, is that we are so hardened in our sins, so indifferent to God, so indifferent also to the chastenings he has given us in the past that God has taken away his chastening hand. Remember what the apostle says in Hebrews chapter 12? Verses 5 and following, And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Let us pray that that is not the case, people of God, for us. It is possible also, people of God, that we simply take our sins too lightly. That because we take our sins too lightly, we assume that the chastening hand of God that has come upon us has not come because of our sins. 
but has come for some other reason. For example, to test our faith. Now, I do not mean to deny that sometimes God sends chastening for other reasons than sins. He does sometimes send chastening to test our faith rather than because of specific sins that we have committed. He also sometimes sends chastening so that he may reveal his power and grace to others. Remember what Jesus said about the blind man in John chapter 9? The Pharisees and the leaders of the Jews and the other Jews and even Jesus' own disciples thought that God had afflicted that man with blindness either because he or his parents had sinned. And Jesus says, no, that's not the explanation. The explanation is that God afflicted him with blindness in order to show his power. It was as simple as that. But the point I'm trying to make here, people of God, is that we sometimes miss the fact that God is chastening us because we take our sins too lightly. We don't consider that God may be very angry with us because of what we have done. We hardly think about the fact that we've offended him. And so when he begins to chasten us, we don't recognize his chastening. In the third place, people of God, we should always, when we are being chastened for sin, recognize that any prayer for removal of that chastening must be grounded in God's character. Because when we are chastened for our sins, we can never say, your punishment is too much. You have gone too far. We deserve every degree of chastening that he may inflict upon us and can never say to him, do not chasten me any longer because I have now paid fully for that sin, because I have suffered enough, because I have done all that I can do. We must always in the chastening of God recognize that his chastening is just and as far as he desires to carry it so far, His justice extends. If we are to ask for the removal of his chastening, it must always be rooted in the fact that he is a God who is filled with loving kindness. He is a God who is essentially benevolent. Besides that, he is a God who desires our praise. In the grave, who shall give thanks to thee? That brings us to our second point. David's confidence in God. In the first line of verse 8, David calls on his enemies to depart from him. They are instruments of the Lord's chastening. But they are also, notice, workers of iniquity. In other words, when they come against David and bring trouble into David's life, whatever that trouble was in this case, we don't know, they are not acting righteously. They are not acting, for example, as a parent might act against one of his children who has been disobedient. The parent may not want to chasten or punish that child. 
That's a painful and difficult thing for parents to do. But he takes the approach that he must. He must for the child's own good. He must, out of obedience to the commandment of God, chasten his child. That's not the approach of these enemies. These enemies are not saying to themselves, God has sent me against David. God wants me to do so and so to David so that David may learn the lesson of his chastening. As also, for example, elders might do with a wayward member of the congregation or as the authorities in the state might do with a criminal. These enemies are not interested in David's well-being. They're not saying to themselves, God sends me and I must, however reluctantly, do what God commands me to do. They are workers of iniquity. God uses them for his own purpose, but they, in their attacks on David, have their reasons. And their reasons are not God's reasons. They seek David's destruction. You can see this clearly illustrated in Isaiah chapter 10, where God talks about his punishment of the nation of Israel through the Assyrians. He says about the Assyrians, they're the rod in my hand. They are the means by which I'm going to chasten Israel for their sins. But he also says in that same chapter, Assyria doesn't think so. It's not in Assyria's heart to do that. Assyria, rather, he says, has imperial ambitions. Assyria wants to cut off nations, and not a few. And among those nations is Israel. So it is with David's enemies. They are the hand of God against David, that God chastening him for his sin. But at the same time, those enemies do not mean David's good. They mean his destruction. And they seek to accomplish their own purposes, not God's. And because of that wickedness that is in them, David can and does call upon them to depart. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. But mostly, David calls on them to depart because he is convinced that the Lord has heard his prayer. That's in the last part of verse 8 and verse 9. Three times he says it. The Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord will receive my prayer. Notice the change in tense. The first two are in the past tense. The Lord has heard. The Lord has heard. The third one is in the future tense. The Lord will receive. David is convinced that the Lord has heard his cry to him, that cry which we find in verses 1 to 7. But he has not yet received the Lord's answer. He is convinced that he will. The Lord will receive my prayer. That is, the Lord will find my prayer acceptable and will give me a favorable answer to that prayer. But he has not yet received it. Notice in the second place that David talks about God hearing his weeping. God hears not only the words that David speaks to him, God also hears his weeping. God hears the weeping of his children and is sorrowful 
and compassionate for them. So we have here, people of God, as in many other Psalms, a turn. A turn from despair, depression, from languishing and very troubled state to a state of confidence and hope. I do not think, however, that we can speak yet of joy. This is not the kind of turn you find sometimes in other psalms where David seems in the first part of the psalm to be in complete despair and then in the second part of the psalm is suddenly rejoicing and giving thanks to God. The turn is not as complete as that. There's confidence and hope, but not yet joy. And it's because he has not yet received the answer to his prayer. The Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord has heard my prayer. The Lord will receive my supplication. In verse 10, then, based on this confidence and hope in God, David turns his prayer against his enemies. Let all my enemies be ashamed and greatly troubled. Let them turn back and be ashamed suddenly. Four things David asks there. First, that they be ashamed. We have to understand that the scriptural use of that word ashamed, especially in the Psalms, is not the same as what our use of it would be. David's not here praying, in other words, that they'll feel ashamed for what they have done to him. That's not his request. His request is rather that they will suffer the shame and humiliation of defeat. What he means here is that God will make them ashamed by preventing them from accomplishing their purposes against them, against him. Make them be ashamed, that is, make them suffer the humiliation and shame of failure. That's the intent of that request. He also says, let them be greatly troubled. And we should notice, people of God, that those words are the precise words that David uses about his own soul in verse 3. My soul is greatly troubled, he says. Here he says, let them be greatly troubled. That is, let them experience what they brought on me. The third request is, let them turn back. And again, we should notice that he uses the same word that he uses in verse 4 when he says, return, O Lord. It's the very same word, though our translation doesn't indicate that. In verse 3, the Lord had turned his back to David. The Lord was going away from him. The Lord had departed from him, had left David forsaken him. David was experiencing his anger and so he says, turn back. Come back to me again. But here in verse 10, David's enemies are facing him and are pressing in on him from every side. And David says to God with regard to those enemies, let them turn back. Let your face be turned toward me, but let their faces be turned away. Drive them out 
of my presence. Remove them from me altogether. And then finally he repeats his petition, the first petition. Let them be ashamed. Adding to it this time, suddenly. That is, he wants a quick answer to his prayer. And he wants that quick answer to bring a full relief. Let them be ashamed suddenly. Again, people of God, we need to draw the lessons from this. First of all, of course, God is a God of loving kindness. He does desire the salvation of his people. He does desire to show his people his goodness, his beneficence, and his kindness. He also wants his praise to be known. We, who have been called by him, are the instruments of that praise in the world. We can therefore call on him, rely on him, as a God who is both kind and a God who desires his praise to be known, to hear us when we call. He does, that's the second thing, he does hear his people when they cry to him. And he will receive their prayers. But finally, we must also recognize that he will receive and answer those prayers in his own time. David prays, let them be ashamed suddenly. And we have no guarantee that God gave him immediate relief from those enemies. God will continue his chastening as long as he feels it necessary. His wisdom and his righteousness are far greater than ours. His ways also are not our ways. And we must learn to submit to his chastening hand. Pray if it is appropriate. Take your chastening away. But recognizing that he is just and wise and may find it necessary to continue, however reluctant he may be to continue, sometimes he finds it necessary to do so. Having heard the word of God, let us say Amen.